So good morning, Granville Chapel again, and uh, all of those who are watching at home, uh, good morning to you too. So today, uh, we are reaching the final phrase of this document that we've been working through, uh, known as the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Over the last few weeks, we've systematically worked our way through it, trying to understand how rooted in Scripture it actually is, and how it provides us with an excellent overview of the core Christian beliefs. It's not comprehensive, but it does cover a lot of key areas. It majors on the Trinity with lots about Jesus himself, and it then moves on to affirm belief in the church, the forgiveness of sins, and as we saw last week, the resurrection of the dead. And today we come to the last phrase of it, I believe in the life everlasting. Well, what does life everlasting mean to you? Probably you find that a pretty hard question to answer. That's because all we know about life down on this planet is that it doesn't last forever. We know ourselves to be mortal, that is, subject to the power of death. So when you think about immortality or life everlasting, we're in a challenge zone. It's not easy to get our heads around that bit. Say, imagine a 150-year life. 150 years, well, and then immediately you think of that length of time. You think of people that you know who've made it to 100. You think, well, they look pretty old and frail. And magnify that by another 50 years, and what are they going to look like? And that's our problem, because time is linear, and life as we know it is... tends to shrink and decay and decline, we can't get our heads into this immortality business. It's hard for us. It's beyond our imaginative capacity at some level. But it does call for imagination. And this passage that we've just looked at this morning and that we're going to be digging further into is a passage that shows us that Paul himself, the apostle, didn't lack imagination. And in this 15th chapter, uh, in his letter to the Christians in Corinth, having argued cogently for the resurrection of the dead, as we saw last week, he moves on to discuss the real issue of what an everlasting life will look like. And to get at this, he starts with a metaphor. He takes a known entity... And he kicks it around and plays with it. And then he extrapolates from that uh, some ideas and some important thinking about what everlasting life might actually be. So the, the metaphor he takes is the metaphor of a seed. So think about a seed, any seed. And what happens with a seed? It gets placed in the ground... It dies, and then, then what? Well, up through the soil 
becomes something. And that something depends on what the seed actually is. So I love this time of year. The crocuses, the snowdrops, and now the daffodils. They're, they're, all, they're all bursting out. But there are seeds down there. And out come from the, the, the seeds, the dead seeds, come the life of the plant. And each of the plants are different, but they're beautiful in their own way. And this metaphor for Paul is a great one. Because human bodies, too, get dumped in the ground and decay. But what comes up? And that's, that's the question. That's what he's thinking about. And that's, that's why this is a great image for him. He then has a bit of fun. He starts thinking about all the different kinds of bodies there are out there. I mean, there's the splendid variety of humanity represented by us as a community. We're all different sizes and shapes and shades of coloring. Varied, fascinating. And Paul says, but it goes beyond that. Think about the birds. Thank you, Paul. I I approve of that. Uh, But he he also includes the fish and, and everything else. There's loads of interesting shapes and forms and sizes out there. And then he thinks wider and he goes, well, think about about beyond. Think about the night sky, the stars, the moon, the sun coming up. All these are different realities. And they're all created by God. They're all shaped by God. They're all formed by God. And the point here is that God is amazingly creative and can do amazing things Because he is the creator and he has great ideas. Look what we can see. So, where do we go here? Well, the point of all this talk of variety is to help the Christians in Corinth and therefore us to understand that we really should give full reign to our imaginations when it comes to thinking about everlasting life. Resurrection bodies, and really this is the point, if you like, resurrection bodies are going to be as different from our mortal bodies as we can possibly imagine. A buried body, we've all been to funerals, a buried body is going to simply disintegrate. It's perishable. It's made of dust. It's laid in the ground in total weakness. But resurrection changes everything. The body that is raised is imperishable. None of that subjection to aging. No more wrinkling and withering. That's done with. Imperishable. Glorious. Powerful. Spiritual. That's the point. There are good things coming in life everlasting. Paul returns to the contrast between Adam and Jesus that he referenced earlier in the chapter. We looked at it a little bit last week. For Paul, there's a 
a linear process. Adam came first, and through Adam came all that death and decay that we experience. But then came Jesus. And the second man, Jesus, the heavenly man, brought in something completely different. Not the old subjection to death, but the breaking of that, the bursting of that, the setting free from that, and the move into life and transformed life. All we know down here in our current setting is that people look like their parents. Sorry, Daniel, it's true. <laughs> no, but that, that's it, right? We, we are shaped. We are shaped by our parents. We are in Adam, and we follow along in that line. And because we look like Adam, we are subject to death and decay. But, and here's the really important thing here, the coming of Jesus changes our destiny. We do not remain stuck in Adam. Because he is the new and the heavenly human, we who follow him and have received new birth by the Spirit of God are now destined to bear his likeness. We are actively being reshaped and renewed to look like Jesus. Well, what is Jesus like? Jesus is the place we need to look for our imagination of everlasting life. And we know from the stories of that first Easter that the resurrected Jesus was a very different Jesus from the one who died. Those lovely stories that we go to at Easter particularly, but because we're an Easter people, we can go to any time, remind us that the Jesus who came out of the tomb was substantially and materially different from the Jesus who was buried in the tomb. Think about some of those differences. He showed up in places unexpectedly, untroubled by locked doors. Think about that. That's interesting. That is our destiny. Life is not going to get worse. It's going to get better and more interesting. He could also disappear, as those two disciples on the road to Emmaus found. Do you remember when he broke the bread, having spent all that time explaining to them how Scripture pointed to him? He broke the bread. They go, oh, you are... And he wasn't there anymore. So he was the same Jesus, but he was the different Jesus. Now, he took great pains to make sure they understood that he was really real. He wasn't a ghost. The women clutched his feet when they fell in the garden and held him. They knew he was real. He ate bread and fish and said, you ever seen a ghost that did that? Of 
course they hadn't. He was new. He was resurrected. He was on that side of death. And it was exciting and interesting. Thomas put his hand in the scars and felt and knew that this really was Jesus and that he really was alive. And yet this resurrection body was powerful and vibrant and not subject to death anymore. I hope you're excited about that. This is what we mean when we say, I believe in the life everlasting. We, it's work for us, right, to get our heads out of the subjection to death and decay. Boy, are we getting our minds rubbed around the subjection to death and decay at the moment. But we're Easter people. We're people that need to get our heads into this reality, the coming of life, the coming of the destruction of death. That's what Paul is teaching them in this passage. It's good stuff. So, okay, in all of this, he's been keeping in mind the reality of the inbreaking kingdom of God. That's what Jesus came to bring. And the challenge for us is that flesh and blood, what we experience in the here and now, cannot simply take on the grandeur of this imperishable coming reality. So this is where Paul looks forward to a day still to come. And in that day, the day of the return of Christ... Remember how it worked? Resurrected, ascended to the Father's right hand, where he sits, waiting for all his enemies to be made subject to him. And then his glorious return, the day. That's the day that Paul is talking about here. That's the day that still lies ahead when there will be a sound of a trumpet, when all the dead who have died in Christ, who have been laid in those graves, will be raised up, imperishable, looking just like Jesus. And all those living at the moment of that return will be clothed with their imperishable new bodies. We will not all sleep. He means sleep in death but we will all be changed. It's coming. That's what he's confident about. That day will unite all the great family of God, the holy Catholic church down the centuries, the church triumphant, those presently with God and those currently here on the earth, united together, imperishable, clothed with this reality. And that's the moment when Jesus Christ returns as king, which will be the moment when death itself 
is swallowed up in victory as all that was perishable and mortal gets clothed with the glory of immortality. Do you get it? Do you get it? We are people that are born for better. And that better is coming. And we have to keep our imagination stoked around that reality. That's the day when Hosea's prophecy that laughs at death will finally come true. Death, where is your victory? It's done with. Sin will be done with. The law itself will be complete history. And great will be the rejoicing as God the Father gets all the praise and as the people of God down the ages celebrate the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, the coming King. Do do you sort of follow Paul's imagination here? Can you see how he's just allowing himself to take what he knows, the fundamental reality of the resurrection of Jesus, and project from that what the future must look like? I don't know what that heavenly life is going to be fully like. But I can assure you this morning that it's good, really good. Some of the analogies used elsewhere in Scripture for that time have to do with banquets. I mean, think about that. We need food. We love to eat. A banquet is special food, a good time. But it's only a metaphor, really, for how good it's going to be. There's going to be a great banquet. I'm sure it'll be fun. I'm sure there won't be social distancing. It'll be great. I'm sure we won't have to worry about who's touched the knives and forks. I mean, it's great. That's what we're looking forward to. Other analogies in Scripture have to do with a wedding. A wedding is a time of great celebration. It's a new start. It's a, it's a, it's a coming together. It's a love story. And a wedding is one of those pictures. Others have to do with a world transformed in such a way that lions and lambs peacefully cohabit. These are the the pictures of what's coming. Christians are hopeful people. Yeah, bad things happen in our world, absolutely. But we have hope because Jesus is alive. All this flows together. The writer C.S. Lewis did a better job than many in exercising his imagination about what that looks like. Many of you know the Narnia series. The last battle is the final book of it. And I just want to read the last part of this uh, beautiful book because this is C.S. Lewis exercising his imagination into that space and time. And at the end of this story, it turns out they discover they've all died. They were in a train, train wreck. And they're on the other side. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. 
your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it, in the shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Isn't that it? Isn't that what we mean by life everlasting? Well, where does that leave us? Paul concludes this major section with a command. Therefore, i.e., because we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, let nothing move you. Nothing is one of those comprehensive words. Let nothing move you. Stand firm. Keep your feet on the ground. Though the stock market plunges and the coronavirus sweeps across the land, though hearts are quaking in fear, stand firm. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And why is that? It's because Jesus has risen. The inbreaking kingdom of God is coming. Life is short but eternity long. Therefore, let us be about the work of God's kingdom. It's worth noticing that when there's trouble in the world, big trouble, the kingdom moves in interesting ways. We've got trouble right now. But the kingdom, the hidden, mysterious kingdom that is coming and coming and coming, moves quicker in times of trouble, it seems to me. So let us be people that stand firm, hold fast, live in hope, live in confidence, 
and live out our belief in this great creedal statement that summarizes so much of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Can we do that this week? Can we live that way? We don't actually know if this is the last gathering that we're going to be able to have for a while. But wherever we are, at home today or here, let's stand firm. Don't give in to fear. Hang on to what we know and trust that the kingdom is coming. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for these hopeful words that Paul was able to write so many centuries ago and yet still are fresh and clear and remind us that we are a people who have much to hope for and who believe in life everlasting. Lord Jesus, you are the risen one. You are unaffected by death. You have destroyed it. And therefore, we turn to you and we pray that you would be glorified and exalted and that your reign and your kingdom would come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. David.